Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. On episode 48, uh, we got lots to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly an enemy-heavy episode because yeah. not only will Isa's enemy corner be returning with a bunch of new shows, returning enemy, and some standouts that he picked out, um, in quick hits, I will also be covering three <laughs> different animes, including two films. Yeah. Uh, one of them is an indie one from Mamoru Hosada called mm-hmm. Bell, mm-hmm. Uh, which is a very unique take on Beauty and the Beast, uh, as well as My Hero Academia, World Heroes Mission, which also was recently released uh, in Singapore at Golden Village and Cathay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, lots of anime to, to talk about. Um, our main topic, though, is obviously, you know, the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe, uh, where we have very like you know divided opinions on big franchise titles, which you know the Eternals is the main one as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, but the new Ghostbusters film called Afterlife is now out, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't like at all. Um, Cowboy Bebop, uh, the live action adaptation of you know and uh, of a very legendary enemy is also out, mm-hmm. which we didn't like. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of big franchise titles that we are we want to express our disappointment in. Yeah. Um, as well as like you know some spotlights for some of the film fest indies that are out because of the various film festivals, including a uh, shout out to Singapore International Film Festival, which is still going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be covering uh, last night in Soho, uh, Titan, which won the Palm Dior at the Cannes International Film Festival, Saloon, um, uh, Lamb. Uh, plus, you know we have a uh, big. Uh, Netflix titles that yeah. are, that's getting a lot of prominence, you know, like Hellbound from South Korea, mm. which is uh, starting to be a minor hit. I mean, not quite Squid Game level, but getting there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, plus we got a new season of Big Mouth. Uh, got the, uh, we got a new Miller World um, animation called Super Crooks. Uh, and lots more, man. I mean, we can't wait to delve into all of this and we don't really have much time because we have so much to cover. Yeah. Uh, so let's just kick it off. With the Eternals, man. Um, Marvel's latest Phase 4 film, directed by 2021 Oscar winner Chloe Zhao. Um, maybe its most, I guess, visually naturalistic and majestic film yet, you know, in terms of scope. Yeah. Um, how well does it execute those ambitions? Uh, well, that's what we're here to talk about. I mean, <laughs> what and who are the Eternals? Um, the film follows a particular group of immortal beings who were sent to Earth in 5000 BC by a group of all-powerful, godlike cosmic entities known as the Celestials. And they were the first life forms uh, created in the universe. Um, the Eternals are tasked to defend Earth from the Deviants. What are Deviants? They are mm-hmm. monstrous aliens that mindlessly devour anything in its path. Um, they are led by the wise Ajax, played by Samuel Hayek. Um, they also include the compassionate but naive Cersei, played by Gemma Chan. The group's uh, pseudo-Superman member Icarus, played by Richard Madden. Mm-hmm. Um, the aggressive warrior Fina, played by Angelina Jolie. Um, and uh, a Bollywood star named uh, Kingo, played by <laughs> Kumail Nanjiani. Uh, filling out the rest of the group is the ever-youthful Sprite, played by Liam McHugh, uh, who has the power to create illusions. There's also Fastos, uh, played by Paperboy, Brian Tyree Henry, yeah. who is an inventor. There is uh, Makari, played by Lauren Ridloff, uh, who is a deaf speedster. 
Uh, and Gil Gomesh, played by Don Lee from Train to Busan, who is the strongest and kindest of the group. Uh, and finally, there is Druig, played by Barry Kilhan, mm. who has the ability to manipulate the minds of others. So, as I mentioned, the group arrived in Earth uh, in the prehistoric era 7,000 years ago to eliminate the Deviants, a mission that they supposedly succeeded in centuries ago. As they wait to return home to their home planet of Olympia, they are told not to interfere in human conflict, but are free to live normal lives in the meantime. Mm-hmm. That is, until a group of deviants reappear, mutated deviants that are very different from the ones they fought, and a dark secret about the true goals of the Celestials makes the group rethink their mission. Um, now with its epic historical scope and more thoughtful humanist themes, it is certainly the most, I guess, intellectually unique Marvel movie from Kevin Feige's canon so far, mm-hmm. that combined with Chloe Zhao's uh, naturalistic visual palette, uh, her on-location shooting, and so forth, Eternals is very different from the usual Marvel film indeed. The question is, did, those, did all those elements go here? Um, what do you think about it? Oh, man. Uh, it's no secret that we're big fans of Chloe Zhao, right? We've already mm-hmm. you know, covered Nomad. Uh, what was the other one that we covered recently? A Variety. A writer as well, you know. Um, and I think when whenever we, we get to the situation whereby one of our favorite kind of indie filmmakers goes together with like the the monstrosity that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a bit of nervousness there. Mm. Um uh, the the Marvel model works, right? Mm-hmm. They have made billions of dollars over the what what are we at now? 30 films or something along those lines. Um, and a bunch of shows too, yeah. And a bunch of shows too. Uh, incredibly popular, makes them a lot of money. Uh, and I, I would like to applaud them for the fact that they are taking kind of risks in terms of the directors that they, they choose. Unfortunately, I think for Eternals, that was a marriage that didn't quite work out, right? Mm. Uh, there are moments in time where I think it's very clear what... Zhao is trying to do, uh, but she feels hampered, right, by the formulaic <clears throat> necessities of being within this cinematic universe. Uh, yeah. Eternals could have been vastly different from any kind of Marvel movie that we've ever gotten had those restrictions been lifted, and I think it would have been a far better product. But being pulled in two directions in that way, it ultimately becomes a compromise that falls very flat. Yeah. Uh, that is not to say that there aren't great things there. I do think that the fight scenes were fascinating and pretty good. If anything, this has might have been the best Justice League fight uh, mm-hmm. I've ever seen on screen uh, outside yep. of, of, of a few like gems that we get from the DC animated universe. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, but yeah, outside of that, like it it doesn't seem consequential right uh mm-hmm. this entire story and they've, they've made so much pains on the onset you know non-interference it's kind of in the background nobody really knows about us there's no from the onset they try to set up the fact that there should be no greater impact of the eternals on the mainline marvel continuity uh, yeah as far as we can tell at the beginning of the movie at the end of the movie it still kind of feels that way right mm. uh again they haven't really tied everything up I'm sure they will talk about it in, in the future movies to come. Wong will come in and explain everything for us. Yeah. Uh, and how that ties it up, which which I'm okay with. 
Uh, but generally speaking, like this feels a lot like a setup movie, uh, yeah. which is unfortunate because like Chloe Zhao is such a talented storyteller, and I mm. think she got stuck uh, with the short end of the stick in mm. this particular case for the Eternals. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think the film is at its best in its quieter moments, uh, which is where Chloe Zhao always shines. But yeah. in themes of the cosmic and historical scope of the film, um, it feels too flimsy and its reach exceeds its grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the CGI spectacle action inevitably comes about, that's where the film abandons its uniqueness for the typical um, cookie-cutter MCU formula. Yeah. Uh, and this is clearly a case of where a director's strengths don't match the studio's house style. Mm-hmm. Um, Zhao's ability, you know, the thought and care that she puts into character work and poetic humanism... Uh, feels restrained in the same way that, you know, um, Ang Lee was in his yeah. Hulk film. Mm-hmm. Um, so overall, I'm giving this a 6 out of 10. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Like, it's not a it's not a bad Marvel movie, right? Like, we have we have a definitive bad Marvel movie, right? Um, yeah, Thor the Dark World, Iron looking, Man 2. Yeah, we're looking at you, yeah, these two culprits specifically. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not a bad movie, but like a lot of stuff that came out this year from Marvel... Outside of the mm-hmm. TV shows, the movies have been meh. Yeah, uh, pretty mediocre. Hopefully, they fix that next month. But yeah, yeah. So we we will see kind of how that goes. Like it, it does feel a lot of like feeder movies of like mm-hmm. no real consequence. Uh, yeah. and I I don't know what it is about Phase Four necessarily that we are having this kind of like downtime. Right, it's not like you know in its heyday where we have hit after hit after hit all the way going all the way to Endgame. Um, mm-hmm. just trying to like keep that momentum. So, uh, the the TV shows have been doing great, right? I'm really excited to see what else we get from that because those feel like meaty and consequential, and they're taking like huge risk, swinging really hard, and you know just going for it and kind of knocking it out of the park. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. if anything, Eternals would have succeeded more as a TV show, as we kind of talked about offline, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas the Falcon and the Soldier probably could have benefited from the brevity of a film. Mm, uh, so yeah, perhaps they could have switched around some of the titles from TV to movies, but you know, um, I think Phase Four is essentially another Phase One, uh, which oh. is why we are get we are getting so many setups again, la. Yeah. Uh, and why we are not getting the climactic, you know, movies of Phase Three. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in that way, I can kind of give it a pass because they're clearly setting something up, and yeah. they haven't quite failed in that respect yet. So yeah. I'm 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 gonna give it a wait and see approach, la. Like Phase Fours films have been turned me off Marvel so much as mm-hmm. it has. Uh, maybe turn my anticipation to look warm uh, for their future titles. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's a 6 out of 10. A fairly meh film. Uh, next up, let's talk about uh, Last Night in Soho, which is now out in Singapore cinemas mm-hmm. uh, everywhere as well as on VOD. This is um, Edgar Wright's latest film, which can be summed up as a time travel ghost story <laughs> about the danger of losing yourself in nostalgia and the big city. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Last night in Soho, it follows uh, Eloise, played by Thomasin McKenzie, who is a shy country mouse of a girl and an aspiring fashion designer who moves out to London for college. Um, not only is she not ready for the bustle and the predators in the big city, she also happens to be able to see ghosts. Uh, once she arrives, she has trouble fitting in until one night in her sleep, she is mysteriously transported to the 1960s, uh, in in the body of a dazzling wannabe singer named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. 
Um, at first, the glamour and the confidence of being Sandy allows her to find confidence in herself in the real world. Mm-hmm. But soon she realizes that the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something far darker. Um, big cities are full of predators and entrenched systems that eat up young girls like her, and this is where she's plunged into the demeaning world of exploitative sex work uh, in the form of Sandy. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Last Night in Soho is half of a great movie, oh, yeah. and half of that work is extraordinary. Like, mm-hmm. right is a craftsman behind the camera and in the editing room. Oh, yeah. And visually, the film is something to behold. It's a crazy kaleidoscopic um, film of bright colors and dark corners and David Lynch-style set pieces and musical sequences that sweep you up. But in these instances, the story's supernatural meets psychological thriller elements work at its best. Mm -hmm. But the film stumbles halfway through with plot threads that don't capitalize on its themes and falters under, you know, one of the dumbest third act twists oh, in recent God. cinematic history. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of style and artistry on display here, but I think Mackenzie and Taylor Joy's performances are somewhat wasted on uh, flimsy character work and a story that doesn't know how to cohere its more intriguing elements. What do you think? Oh, man. It, it is quite literally half of a great movie. Yeah, uh, like the, the one a, hour mark, right? Yeah, the one hour a, mark, exactly. There's yeah. a definitive point where you can see it turn to shit. Uh, yeah. And it is so tragic because it's such a beautiful movie. The music is great as with almost every Edgar Wright movie. Uh, cinematography is fantastic. Costumes are on point. Set design is on point. Uh, premise is contrived, uh, but interesting for the large mm-hmm. part. Um, yeah. The performances, honestly, I mean, I love Anya Taylor-Joy. Made no secret about that. I think she she acted her heart out, right? As far mm. as like Sandy going. But there just wasn't enough given to her to kind of like really shine, right? Same goes for McKinsey. Um, mm-hmm. who, who's, I think her wide-eyed like countryside girl thing makes a lot of sense. Uh, very similar to her other work. Um, but when it gets frantic, when the horror kicks in, right? She's no scream queen. Uh, mm. And I think that's also like kind of unfortunate. Uh, in its own way, uh, yep. I have so many issues with this this story, and I think like a lot of it has to do with the fact that while Wright establishes this amazing kind of flourishes to draw these like symbolic things, like the mirror work is insane and mm-hmm. incredibly inventive, and oftentimes like pure genius. But there are no set rules for this this story, right? Uh, in terms of like what exactly does it mean? for her to like travel back into the past what are the rules for that you know uh what are the rules for the supernatural here like there is no everything seems arbitrary and follows a kind of dream logic that unfortunately bleeds into the real world in an extremely unsatisfying way Mm. um and yeah so like it's such a waste it is such a waste because there could have been some very very powerful storytelling some very powerful like thematic exploration that could have gone on. I think Matt Smith as a slime ball is a phenomenal idea that we never get to really see, right? Mm-hmm. He's more conceptual than he is character, uh, mm-hmm. which is also unfortunate, you know? Um, I I don't know. I, I really don't know what it is that you could possibly do to fix it. 
past the mm. one hour mark, it feels already like it's too late. Like something has gone wrong and there's no way to kind of fix what could have potentially been a great movie. Um, yeah, indeed. Definitely not one of Wright's best works, uh, for sure. But I mean, I think it's worth a watch just for the visual spectacle if mm. you can put up with the frustration of seeing it till its end. Yeah, um, 100% agree. I think it's almost worth seeing last night in Soho for the glorious heights of the oh, yeah. first hour um, as Wright you know, manipulates the visuals and acts like you know, a master magician in developing this illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when that illusion evaporates in the second hour um, where it turns into um, you know, just Wright homaging giallo horror in a very, like, um, obvious and very like unsubtle way mm-hmm. where that illusion evaporates and the movie disappoints. Um, I think right in his last two films, which are the only two films like Baby Driver and Here, yeah. um, it, it's where you're starting to see Edgar Wright a bit, um, the cracks are starting to show in what Edgar Wright is as a filmmaker. Yeah. I think the, the key is that all his films prior to Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho have been written by Simon Peck. And, mm. um, and Wright is more of a visual craftsman than a storyteller. Um, so he is one half of a uh, of uh, of a duo that that works spectacularly, and in the films where it's just Edgar Wright, it's just visually spectacular and just you know a lot of great editing, a lot of great music, a lot of great visuals. But the story just doesn't you know just doesn't work, yeah. and I think that's what you're starting to see. Like it's the it's the Simon Peckless Edgar Wright that doesn't work, and, and I think that's the issue. Um, that's why I'm giving this film a five out of ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a five out of ten for me. Like strictly middle middle of the line because it's half mm-hmm. a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Now I'm going to quickly uh, delve into the first part of Quick Hits where I'll be mostly talking about some of the film festival uh, favorites of mine that have come mm-hmm. out in, in recent months. Um, The first one I'm going to be talking about is Titan, which is this year's Palm Dior winner at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, which was historic because its director, uh, Julia de Cornell, is only the second ever woman to win the prize. Um, you may remember de Cornell from her 2016 cannibal horror film, Raw. Um, to say that her new film, Titan, um, is grosser and gnarlier and weirder than a cannibal movie uh, would be an understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even really know where to start, but I'm, I'm just going to start with the premise, lah. Um, it is an ultra fucked up, super queasy body horror extravaganza about a serial killer. Um, this serial killer, as a child, she was in a car accident, so most of her skull and bones have been reconstructed with titanium, uh, mm. hence the title Titan. She's a bit of a Wolverine in that sense. Um, more than she enjoys killing people, um, she enjoys having sex with cars. Yeah, you heard me right. Like She <laughs> likes to have sex with cars. Somehow, one day, she discovers in the middle of a killing spree that she is pregnant with a child of a car uh, and, and motor oil, yeah, like motor oil starts pouring from her mouth and breasts and vagina and she tries a DIY abortion by you know, stabbing herself in the pussy. Uh, and let me tell you, stuff like that is like the least of the body horror. <laughs> For, to make things worse, the police are after her and she goes into hiding by moving in with a firefighter. And how does she do this? She does this by impersonating the firefighter's dead son, who the film implies that she killed. Oh, so she, she killed this kid, pretends to be him, moves in with her dad. 
uh, it's also implied, you know, that, that she killed the firefighter's son. So, like, like I said, like, super fucked up, you know. Um, however, as deranged and gruesome as this film is, um, it is, it is physically and psychologically gruesome. Mm-hmm. The film actually, like, halfway through, turns bizarrely sweet. That's because the firefighter and the serial killer actually do form a strange kind of bond. The closer they get, the more the serial killer tries to hide her gender, which gets more difficult because her stomach, you know, is getting bigger and her boobs are getting swollen because uh, she's pregnant with a car. Uh, there are many scenes of her wrapping herself, you know, up in duct tape, trying to hide a figure that is just as painful uh, to watch as, as anything in Raw. Um, those scenes of, you know, like the twisted, squeezed flesh are more di- discomforting or, or disconcerting than even her killings are. Uh, whatever you're willing to take from it, there's no denying that Titan is the work of a demented visionary in full command of her wild mind. Mm-hmm. The movie is like David Cronenberg meets Gaspar Noir. Um, you know, it's gross and violent and traumatic and erotic and pitiless. But it's also a touching and tender modern fable about a weird bond between a parent desperate to believe that his son is alive and a girl relieved to find someone who will love her. Um, Titan is visceral and hard to watch. It's just like this cornucopia of disturbing imagery that will stick with you, but I think despite your disgust, uh, Ducanel's command of camera and emotional storytelling will compel you to never look away. I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10. Wow. Uh, next up, let's move on to something I just saw last night uh, at the Singapore International Film Festival. It's called Saloom. Um, it's directed by Congolese filmmaker Jean-Luc Herbelot. Uh, Saloom is set in Senegal's 2003 military coup, uh, which, you know, if you remember the news at the time, was described uh, as bloodless in the media, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, the, distinctly not very so, according to the locals. Uh, we follow the Bangui Hyenas, uh, who they are a trio of mercenaries with legendary, almost mythical reputations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hyenas, this mercenary group, are, tr- are tasked with extracting a Mexican drug lord named Felix and a suitcase of gold bullion. Uh, apparently, these mercenaries are rumored to be quote unquote sorcerers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hyenas' supposedly straightforward task is to take Felix, the drug lord, to the car and collect a mountain of cash for their time and trouble. But when their fuel tank and their escape plane springs a leak, the hyenas are forced to set down in the Cine Saloum Delta, where Senegal's Saloum River meets the North Atlantic. The narrator tells us that Cine Saloum is a sacred and protected place and a land of myths and cursed kings. Um, true to these words, Saloum shifts in tone to acquire an unsettling folk horror-like ambiance, uh, where the hyenas and Felix find refuge in Baobab, which is just you know a collection of seaside huts and cabins. Mm-hmm. Um, Baobab is run by Omar, who is like this oddball landlord who assigns chores to his guests where, you know, um, it's kind of a condition for the accommodation and you don't pay for your stay, but you do you do chores. Yeah. Um, and so Omar hosts communal meals where, you know, wide-ranging topics, you know, include uh, conversations about politics in post-colonial Africa and the sayings of Thomas Sankara um, the, and, and about pan-Africanist president Bukana Faso. There, there's a tense undercurrent that runs through these seemingly agreeable exchanges that is very palpable, um, as if the slightest wrong word or look could set things on a decidedly darker path. So there's a lot of great tension in the hyenas, you know, being undercover and Felix being undercover, trying to get by in this place. 
To make things worse, among Bukham's guests are a police chief named Suleiman mm-hmm. uh, and an intense young mute woman named Awa who actually recognizes the hyenas and threatens to expose them unless certain conditions are met. In this kind of environment, in the company of these offbeat characters, the hyenas use sign language to communicate, and the film expertly exploits this device to ramp up tension and trigger unpredictable plot twists, especially with regards to the mute girl who also understands sign language and is able to decipher their their secret communications. Mm -hmm. Um, At around the halfway point, the mysterious atmosphere around Baobab coalesces into something explicitly supernaturally malevolent. The catalyst is a recurring nightmare experienced by the hyena's leader, Chaka. Um, His visions have compelled him to revisit this place and take revenge on those responsible for terrible crimes. Um, Worse still, these offenses continue to be perpetrated in the service of a bargain with supernatural forces. Then monstrous beings are then unleashed that are really cool and unique. You know, at first, these creatures appear to be like insects or birds, you know, mm-hmm. kind of flocking flocking together in a whirlpool-like formation. Yep. And then they morph into like human-shaped figures with horns. Uh, but there's also more going on than these excellent CG creations, you know. Um, there are elements of the earth such as, you know, leaves and dirt and other organic material appear to be part of the mix. So they become like this whole supernatural slash natural uh, beast. Uh, and the precise combination of these beings is hard to determine, but it's not in doubt that they are able to shock and and produce suspense and terror. And unlike many horror films, like Saloom lets its monsters loose in exclusively broad daylight and it's all the better for it. Um, it's part a crime thriller, part horror fantasy, and part spaghetti western. Mm-hmm. Um, Saloom is like this genre-hopping tale made with considerable style and imagination. Um, I'm not easily surprised, and this film surprised me at every turn because, you know, Ooh. I came in expecting to watch... A, um, an, an extraction type movie about like you know African <laughs> commandos like um, getting a drug dealer out of, out of town and then it becomes a spaghetti western mm-hmm. and then it becomes a folk horror um, it packs a huge amount of action and information into 80 minutes which is a very short movie and and this compact film keeps its you know pistons running and firing all throughout the mayhem it never pauses long enough for you to catch your breath mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of a, like this West African art house gem uh, it's one of the best films I caught at uh, SGIF uh, this year, so I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10 as well. Nice. Uh, next up, let's move on to an anime called Bell, which I don't know, have you seen Bell yet? I have not. Sweet, okay. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about it. Bell is a dazzling new anime from Mamoru Hosada that combines uh, pop stars, uh, grieving high schoolers, and cyber dragons into a weird and wonderful skew on Beauty and the Beast for the digital age. Um, I caught this uh, at a Cannes Film Festival screener and it was one of my faves. Uh, but now it's out in GV and Cafe, so you can watch it there as well. Uh, the story follows Suzu, who is a 17-year-old living in a rural village. Mm-hmm. For years, she has been unable to process the passing of a mother who died in an accident that she doesn't quite understand. And as a result, has been growing distant from her well-meaning father. One day, she enters uh, something called You which is a virtual world of 5 billion members on the internet. Mm-hmm. In you, she becomes a world-famous pink-haired singer called Belle. Um, how does this work? You know, thanks, to biometric de- how, thanks to biometric data, you know, so, you know, all the things that they gather from your, from your body, from your mind. The, bio- uh, the biometric data amps up your online avatar with the user's inner strengths. You know, not, not your outward uh, personality or outward looks. It's your inner self that is uh, expressed in your avatar, right? 
so that's how she becomes like this superstar pop icon. So like inside this world of you, like this ready player one type world, she like meets with like this mysterious dragon avatar uh, mm-hmm. called Beast. Uh, and together they embark on like this journey of adventures and challenges of love. And they have this quest to become who they truly are. There's this mystery of who the beast is, and that's the heart of the film. Uh, and also the heart of the film's heartbreaking climax, and it's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the visuals are astounding. It's filled with like this breathless mid-flight battles and spectacular scenes of you know giant whales swimming in a liquid sky. I think tonally the film strikes a careful a balance between like a high school drama and the real world of its teen characters and the online Ready Player One-esque realm, but also explores like how those two environments mm-hmm. bleed into each other. Like one is like this deluge of harsh realism, while the other is a fantasy of escapism. Um, and while there are negatives to the VR game, you know, uh, to the VR game world, like the toxicity that comes with anonymity uh, and superficial judgments of people you don't even know, I think uh, Mamoru Hosada also emphasizes that there are some positives for people like Suzu. Mm-hmm. Where the VR world presents like you know um, a, a therapy for for the repressed who need encouragement to bring their inner selves out of hiding. Um, it's a beautifully observed and dazzlingly animated uh, sci-fi fairy tale uh, about how our online slash offline double lives uh, might coalesce, uh, and it might be Hosada's finest film to date. Uh, I'm probably giving this an eight out of ten, which is higher than previous two films. Mm-hmm. Uh, now showing at Golden Village in Singapore, highly recommend that you check it out. Nice. Uh, finally, let's talk about Hellbound on Netflix, which I think you caught a bit about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So okay. Um, I think no other TV show on 2021 has an <laughs> opening quite as explosive as Netflix's new South Korean horror called Hellbound. Yeah. Uh, within the first scene, in the first few minutes, we see a jittery man in a cafe looking anxiously at a clock on his phone. As time runs out, three hulking, demonic creatures appear from the ether. They gruesomely shred and incinerate him in like hellish flames, leaving nothing behind but ash. Um, right off the bat, we are introduced to a horrifying world where angels appear to inform people of their sins, forewarn mm-hmm. them of their time of death before um, dark side slash swamp thing looking monsters show up. Uh, at the appointed time to drag them to hell. Um, in a typical horror narrative, the arrival of these malevolent, otherworldly entities is the scary thing. But what if these demonic killings were captured on camera phones, uploaded on social media, and became viral sensations? The threat of actual demons would pale in comparison to the religious zealotry, the public panic, and media frenzy that would ensue. And that's the premise behind the smart, spooky, and slow-burning series. It's adapted from uh, Yong San Ho's uh, popular webtoon, The Hell, uh, and directed by the director of Train to Busan. Mm-hmm. Um, Hellbound is partly a crime procedural and partly an exploration of how misinformation can be spread and amplified in the, inter- in the, in the internet age to yep. manipulate people. Um, the crime procedural aspect is led by a seasoned police detective still reeling from the murder of his wife six years ago and it's now unfortunately the officer tasked with investigating the supernatural deaths. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's a lawyer named Min Heijin uh, who is also looking into the rise of a cult called The New Truth who is led by the charismatic leader Chairman Jung. Um, the New Truthers proclaim the phenomena as a revelation from God gaining power through its legions of newly de- de- devoted followers. Um, to make matters worse, an extremist faction of New Truth called Arrowhead 
launches a campaign to publicly shame these so-called sinners. Um, particularly in episode two, they unveil the next victim as Jungja Park online. Shockingly, her only sin is that she's a single mother of two with different fathers for each child. Um, a raving online pundit even presents this poor woman as a symptom of moral decay, mm-hmm. uh, and encourages his viewers to dox her to, to prevent her two children from fleeing the country. Miss Park is then offered 3 million yen uh, by the new truth to broadcast her quote-unquote demonstration, which is a demonic execution, mm-hmm. the live to the masses. Um, in this, the series presents like a Black Mirror-ish horror. You know, hundreds of onlookers and streamers and mainstream media assemble to watch a woman die. And I think Hellbound does a great job of depicting the ugliness of a vulnerable society in this new status quo. There's proof of the existence of hell and the implication of a vengeful God. So Puritans are given like public soapboxes to judge and condemn others. Religious organizations stoke fear to gain influence. Um, lunatics spout unfounded conspiracy theories online. There are fanatical lynch mobs roaming the street to dispense vigilante punishment to secular skeptics. Um, all the while, the best media is there to lap it up for ratings. Uh, the show is filled with fascinating moral quandaries and social commentary, mm-hmm. and the investigative threads present the drive that unravels the bigger picture mysteries and the surprising character motivations. Um, I think the show can be deliberate in its pacing, which might be a flaw, but I think Hellbound's spurts of grisly horror are spaced out to ensure that the characters and the viewers can po- properly consider the intriguing questions of morality and mortality presented. Uh, and they are very complex, and they depict the accidental crises that can arise uh, and the, con- the convenient interpretations we assign to things that we don't understand. Essentially, you know, it's a story about how human beings leap onto confirmation bias, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's uh, ascribed to divine beings or not. Um, that's why I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, how much of Hellborn have you seen? Uh, just two episodes. Sweet, okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like, already I've been kind of sold on the premise. Uh, the <laughs> the world we live in is horrifying in very, very different ways. And I, I think sometimes we have a lot more to worry about than just demons dragging us to hell. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, yeah, looking forward to completing it. Um, and it's good to know that, that it, it's kind of consistent across the season. Sweet. Um, my review, uh, just to let people know, is actually based on the first three episodes because I can't tell you what happens in episode four yep. because the show um totally <laughs> revamps the show revamps its cast in episode four. Yeah, like um it it I, I can't tell you what happens. It's just that they have a whole new cast. <laughs> the, the the story goes in a whole different direction, and it's such a big thing that I can't talk about it. That's fine. But yeah, I I hope I hope we get to that point soon. Um. Anyways, uh, now let's move on to. Netflix's live-action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop starring John Cho. Um, this has gotten like a lot of traction online for good and for bad. Um, what is your opinion, you know, being a big Cowboy Bebop fan, uh, now seeing um, Hollywood take its crack at such a beloved uh, enemy? Yeah, so I decided, and I was telling kids uh, a couple of months back when they were when when the live action thing was about to be announced, and Netflix also put on the anime, uh, the original anime uh, started available, um, started Netflix, being available yeah. to be streamed on Netflix. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna go rewatch the anime. It's been a couple of years, right? Uh, been a huge fan of that. I think like Cowboy Bebop the movie was my first anime movie, and I was completely blown away by that. That was one of my mm. first kind of introductions to how amazing the medium could be. Uh, oh man, where do we begin? I, I think that was a mistake because like kind of watching most of the season of the original anime and then starting on that 
was not a good idea. The side-by-side mm-hmm. comparison does not fare well. Um, so let's put it this way. You are a big Cowboy Bebop fan. You would like to see what the world would look like in live action. For some reason, like, some of us always hope that, you know, a live action adaptation of one of our favorite animes may possibly be good. Mm. Uh, Cowboy Bebop does not do that, right? Yep, uh, yep. You will be vastly disappointed. I think that Trolls Spike lags swagger. Mm. Um, the fight scenes are clumsy. The editing mm. is clumsy. Uh, it's a mess. It's a real mess. Uh, and it's very, very sad because I think like as much as they try to emulate something that has gone before, right? It's very clear like that the opening credits and the music choices and all of that, the music choices aren't bad. Um, you know, there is something, there's a standard that, that has been set and it's a very high standard they're trying to live up to, but it falls short at every step of the way. The characters yeah. aren't interesting. Um, the performances aren't interesting. Like there's nothing here being offered um, mm. that the original anime does not have. So it puzzles yeah. me and largely, and Hit and I were talking about this, like uh, anyone who has watched the anime and is a fan hates the live action. And mm. anyone who hasn't watched the anime and is watching the live action um, says, ah, it's okay, it's pretty good. Um, kinder towards it. Yeah, but why would you watch the live action when the anime exists? Mm. Is my kind of like main question. Right, it feels extremely lost. Like the people who are attached to this project have an idea of what Cowboy Bebop is, uh, yep. but have no idea how. Like they're missing the point, essentially. Mm. Right, above and beyond all like the toxic discussions about like changing Faye Valentine's like, you know, costume doesn't show enough skin. You're essentially like depowering what is a very like powerful like. A uh, female icon within anime, da 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 da, and all like these fanboys kind of like bashing on that. I said, like, that's the least of their problems, right? Mm-hmm. I don't care what Faye Valentine is wearing if you can give me a Faye Valentine live action that's believable, and she's not. Uh, mm. Spike is not, yeah, like, I mean, I think Cho makes a valiant effort, but it's not kind of the same, right? Like, he doesn't, he doesn't have, he's not smarmy enough, number one. Um, his his spike is not smarmy enough, and he yep. he just doesn't have the gravitas to deliver the kind of lines that is necessary, right? So often the one liners just fall so flat; it's cringeworthy. Mm. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I mean, like I gave this four episodes, which is which is honestly four episodes more than I should have given it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'm gonna give it a four and a half right out of 10 just because i do feel that the possibility of it being a gateway for people who have not watched the original anime or the movies uh uh, have an opportunity to discover something really good behind that and Mm -hmm. that's the reason like it's like a barely fail right um yeah yeah i i don't understand the editing is so bad it Mm. is so bad it is so clumsy and like in a day and age where like the kind of martial arts that we get to see on screen, the kind of fight choreography that we're getting just from like TV shows on cable, like mm. there's no reason why it should be that bad. You know, um, it's unfortunate. It really, really is. Same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with your rating. Perhaps I might even give it a bit lower, but 4.5 out of 10 seems more than fair. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still sticking with Netflix now mm-hmm. uh, for Super Crooks, which is set in Mark Millar's superhero universe mm-hmm. as introduced in Jupiter's Legacy. Um, this is a stylish new anime. It is gorgeously animated, mm-hmm. hilarious and gory <laughs> and breezily paced. Um, Super Crooks follows a low-level, electricity-wielding supervillain called Johnny Bolt as he embarks on a dangerous, the most dangerous heist of his career when he is recruited by the legendary thief The Heat uh, to be part of a crew that robs both the Union of Justice and the world's most feared crime boss. Uh, it is an insane job that will have these small-time crooks up against the cops, up against the top-level supervillains, and up against the top-level superheroes that we've already seen in Jupiter's Legacy. Um, I think think the bloody violence and super-powered subversion of Invincible yep. meets the art style, music, tone, and vibe of The Pretender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of get why the series uh, is, is very cool. Um, it is it original? Uh, not terribly. Uh, but as directed by Motunobu Hori and uh, written by Dai Sato, uh, it's also animated by Studio Bones, who who is quite uh, you know has a good reputation. Uh, the show is enjoyable and works in all the ways where Jupiter's Legacy failed, which is why this is seven out of ten mm-hmm. uh, and much higher rated than Jupiter's Legacy. <laughs> Uh, next up, we have uh, Big Mouth, which returns for its fifth season, which continues to crassly and smartly confront the horrors and indignities of puberty through absurdist comedy with uh, hormone, hormone monsters and anthropomorphic genitals. And, you know, despite its in, in, intentionally juvenile grossness, the series has always been more than, you know, gentle side gags and cum jokes. Um, previous seasons have been astutely able to tackle emotional growth of its characters as they stumble through adolescence and sexual awakening in deep, meaningful, and surprisingly smart ways. Uh, this season tries to do the same thing with episodes about body image mm-hmm. and insecurities and fears and jealousies and adolescent ideas of love, all while still steeped in that kind of gross-out sexual humor. Yeah. I think the only problem is the season seems to find the show for the first time ever. It seems like this season is recycling itself. Mm-hmm. It's as if Big Mouth has run out of new things to say and run out of funny ways to present them. Mm-hmm. It's still a really fun show, but the, the ratio of genuinely LOL jokes and deep insight is much lower in season 5 because everything they try here, they've tried before, which is why I'm only giving this a 6 out of 10. Uh, next up, let's move on to Lamb, mm. which is uh, now showing at the projector, or if you're overseas, you know, it's available on DOD. Uh, Lamb is a quiet and sparse uh, folk horror from Iceland, uh, the newest from A24's, you know, art house genre canon. Uh, the film follows a childless couple in rural Iceland who rear sheep. Mm-hmm. One day, they discover an unusual lamb in their barn, uh, a creature with the head of a sheep and the body of a human baby. Uh, it's a little like Sweet Tooth. Um, <laughs> the titular creature is a combination of child actors and puppetry and real animals and CGI. And it's you know actually quite adorable and amusing, but mm-hmm. also oddly unsettling. Um, however, most of the film consists of relatively mundane depictions of rural domesticity. Um, you see scenes of them farming, cooking, fixing tractors and so forth. Um, while it is beautiful... Um, especially with its isolated mood and gorgeous natural scenery. It is frankly rather boring, and the mundanity is given just the slightest friction of surrealism by the presence of a hybrid creature dressed in the cutesy wardrobe of human toddler. Um, 
unfortunately, I think Lamb's novel premise only goes so far. And after, past a certain point, the film's quietly deadpan minutiae simply becomes tedious. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is primarily because it th- its themes of grief and domestic strife and parenthood are so flimsily explored. Uh, so I'm giving this a 5 out of 10. Uh, unfortunately, this this one just doesn't work for me. Um, yeah, I think oh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a bit sad. Uh, finally, I'm going to be talking about Disney's Encanto, which is the, the new animated feature uh, coming out of Walt Disney a- Animation. Um, Encanto has a, lot of, has a lot going for it, particularly because Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the soundtrack to it. So mm-hmm. you, already know, see, you already know it has, a good so- it has tons of good songs and a, a fabulous soundtrack. Yep. Um, it follows the Madrigal family who live hidden in the mountains of Colombia in a magical house, in a vibrant town, in a wondrous and charmed place called Encanto. The magic of Encanto has blessed every child in the family with a unique superpower, uh, ranging from super strength to super healing. Um, while every child except for one, named Mirabelle, who is uh, voiced by Brooklyn Nine-Nine's uh, Stephanie Beatrice, mm-hmm. um, but when she discovers that the magic surrounding Encanto is in danger, Mirabelle decides that she, the only superpowerless ordinary Madrigal, might just be, um, might just be her family's last hope. Mm-hmm. First off, this is a beautiful film to look at. It has crisp and colorful design work, surprisingly photorealistic character touches, uh, creative and stylish uh, and fantastical musical sequences. Um, the film set in Colombia has a distinctive and welcome sense of place and culture. That being said, the movie is ultimately incredibly formulaic, filled with the tropes and beats found in every other Disney cartoon movie. Um, don't get me wrong, there's so much to enjoy about Encanto, particularly the songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the gorgeous animation, the cultural traditions, but the script's shortcoming and predictability are its undoing, So, which is why this is a 6 out of 10 for me. Uh, let's move on to Isa's stake on one of Netflix's biggest hits of the year, oh, particularly yeah. biggest animation hit of the year, which is based on the popular video game League of Legends, Let's talk about Arcane. Uh, what do you think about season one of Arcane, which just recently wrapped up? Oh, man. As, as I was kind of preparing my notes for Arcane, I had to ask yeah. myself the question, is it because we have not had any good steampunk shit come out in a long time? That's what I feel really strongly about Arcane. Or is it the fact that like Arcane is just really, really good? In fact, it might be, in my opinion, one of the top contenders for best video game adaptation. Uh, mm. that we've ever gotten, right? And to list a number of things that we have covered that we totally love that are all from video games, we've got Castlevania, we've got um, the... Dota? We've got Dota, right? Uh, yeah. um, and then now we have Arcane as well. Uh, yeah. Arcane stands out uh, for the big reason that it has decided to go a completely different animation route. Uh, instead of kind of your standard animation, it has gone for the ever-increasingly popular cell-shading style of 3D animation, mm-hmm. uh, which I think Hits and I have complained about like to no end. But that yeah, it, being, w- it works sometimes, but most of the time, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, most yeah. of the time, well, I think Arcane, for like a good 80% of, of its, its entirety, it definitely works out. Arcane has some of the most insane fight scenes I've seen in this style. Uh, it's extremely high-quality, the world is well thought out. 
like Piltover and Zan are just fascinating looks at a, a, a you know a, a steampunk-ish dystopian society, dystopian utopian society, and you know the characters are interesting. Like I'm not a big League of Legends guy. Uh, I never really got into that. Ne- never been exposed to the lore, but I think it's done a fantastic job at just kind of like developing its characters. Now, my yep. main issue with that, right? Music is... Music is... Uh, I mean, there's only so many Imagine Dragon songs I want to hear uh, mm-hmm. at a time. But, um, like, I do feel that cinematography uh, has been interesting. It has been varied. Sometimes it has been breathtaking. Uh, mm-hmm. I do feel, like, the action, again, like, hands down some of the best action I've seen in animation this year in this particular style. Uh, yep. It feels grand. It feels consequential. It feels uh, heavy, right? The story itself may not necessarily be exploring some of the darker and overarching themes to the extent that you might want, right? The idea mm-hmm. of like privilege and poverty, um, you know, and segregation and, and things like that. Uh, I don't think it gets fully as fully fleshed out as it could possibly be. But then again, yep. I'm not here for that necessarily. The fact that they highlight these things, I think is good enough. Okay. My main issue is that shell, cell shading still hasn't caught up in its ability to mimic facial expressions to the degree mm. in which it is believable, right? Which is something yep. that I think a lot of the more traditional anime styles have managed to do. Um, in, not in a like hyper realistic way, but in in uh in a way that at least conveys its meaning. And I think that Arcane definitely does struggle from that. There are just too mm. many moments that break your immersion when the voice acting conveys an emotion that just doesn't match what you see on the character's face on screen. Yeah, uh, I agree. And, and that has been my biggest kind of like demerit point against Arcane. Um, mm. I do think as technology kind of gets better, that will change in due time. But man, like all in all, like, Arcane is quite a trip, right? To yep. have magic in a steampunk world is one of the combinations that we haven't got that much of in recent years. In the last decade, I would say. Uh, and to have all of that fleshed out um, in a very, very compelling way, uh, has just made this whole package in general extremely enjoyable. So I'm going to yeah. give it an 8 out of 10, uh, nice. which I think ranks up there with Castlevania Season 1 um, yeah. when we first reviewed it. Uh, what are your thoughts, Hits? Um, I'm giving this a, a slightly lower 7.5 out of 10, yeah. um, primarily because I echo all the strengths, so I don't need to repeat that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, like the, the cell shading doesn't work for me, but it works here because it's dynamic in its action mm-hmm. and i think it has this real like artistic flair to it. It, it the art reminds me of you know like fiona staples is a uh, sega art oh, you yeah know? yeah you know the, so i really like all that like the hand-painted aesthetic and all of that so gorgeous but i really dislike the derivativeness of the ya sci-fi fantasy storytelling oh, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it's very trophy and very cliche and yeah. and i i saw where every plot line was going like six episodes <laughs> before you know um so that I to me to me the uninterestingness of the story yeah. uh fills me, but I love the aesthetic and I love uh I love everything else about it like, like visually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why it's a seven point five or a bit lower than the eight out of ten. Yeah. I mean like it's it's made for its target audience, you know. Uh yeah. like Riot had to come out with with um uh, with big swings and I think they did a pretty good job as far as that's possible. I'm not yeah. expecting like a masterpiece of a story. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, given that, again, this is largely made for the fans and if they get more fans along the way, you know, I think uh, it's a win for them, right? Yep. Uh, but, I mean, if we could get a storytelling within this world that is amazing, that kind of matches, like, the artistry of its aesthetic, then, sure, right? I would definitely be down for that. But, yeah, overall, it's an, an enjoyable thing. Just don't think too much about it. Yeah, definitely, man. Uh, next up, going to be delving to the last batch of quick hits. First up, I'm going to be talking about Dr. Brain, which is a new Korean sci-fi series on Apple TV. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Brain follows, uh, wouldn't you know it, a brain scientist uh, named Siwon, who <laughs> is uh, looking for clues on a mysterious accident that claimed his family. Yeah. He does this by using experimental technology on memory transfer to access the memories of the dead. The premise sounds decent and holds potential, but aside from kind of brief sparks of genuinely disturbing ideas, much of the season plays like a run-of-the-mill detective thriller mm-hmm. with a slight tinge of the supernatural. It is competently made, but thoroughly unspecial, so it's a 5 out of 10 for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, let's talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife, um, which is probably the biggest cinematic release next to Eternals this month. Yeah, uh, It takes place five years after the ill-fated female-centric Ghostbusters reboot. Here's a brand new attempt to revive the franchise. Mm-hmm. This time, it's a canon entry directed by Jason Reitman, the son of the original film's director, Ivan Reitman. Uh, and probably because of that family connection, Ghostbusters Afterlife is absolutely obsessed with the theme of legacy and inheritance, which is why this new movie is all about the original characters and even more importantly, their children. Um, Afterlife takes place in a mostly empty small town of Oklahoma where... A single mother named Kelly, played by Carrie Coon, and her children, Trevor, played by Finn Wohart, and Phoebe, played by McKenna Grace, they move there after get- getting evicted from their urban apartment. They find themselves on a farm belonging to their granddad, who is an original Ghostbuster. These kids, along with their newfound classmates, soon find and dust off, you know, the proton packs, they find the Ecto-1, uh, and they use all this to face down pretty much the exact same ghostly villains that their predecessors fought in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some jokes here with Paul Rudd who brings a little lightness to the kids' uh, to the kids' adventure. You know, he plays the science teacher, Mr. Ruberson. Yeah. Uh, but overall, it's hard to escape the sensation of um, a corpse being exhumed. Um, Afterlife desperately wants to summon the spirit of watching the first movie, mm-hmm. but ends up being a nostalgia trip object kind of devoid of its own soul um this is exactly the kind of danger in nostalgia that last night and soho warns you about yeah it's, it's uh it's four out of ten for me um total fail uh finally before we delve into <sighs> anime corner yeah i have my own anime movie to talk about yeah. which is my hero my hero academia world heroes mission uh otherwise known as my hero academia the movie tree um the movie is finally in Singapore thanks to the distributors Odex and I got to see an early preview at Cafe earlier this month. Mm-hmm. Um, World Heroes Mission focuses on a doomsday terrorist faction called Humorize that is organizing to decimate the Quirk population. The cult's beliefs are based on the Quirk doomsday theory, which is mentioned in Season 4, which mm-hmm. posits that interbreeding among superpowered humans may evolve human powers that can overwhelm and destroy humanity. So they plant gas bombs containing the trigger drug uh, introduced in the anime uh, mm-hmm. worldwide to mass murder quirked humans and leave behind the pure, quote-unquote pure, uh, quirkless individuals in the New World Order. 
Um, as a result, yeah. J- Japan's greatest heroes disperse across the globe in an attempt to find the ring leader and bring him to justice. Uh, a part of Endeavor's team is, of course, Deku, Bakugo, and Todoroki, who travel to the European nation of Ophion. But mm-hmm. after stopping a robbery gone wrong, uh, Deku finds himself framed for a mass murder and on the run with a two-bit criminal with both Ophion's police force and the terrorists hot on his trail. Uh, one of the film's best aspects, actually, is Deku's relationship with this petty criminal named Roddy. Uh, but juxtaposition between the optimistic Deku and the cynical civilian just struggling to make ends meet is quite good. Their dynamic makes for a fun buddy buddy road movie kind of kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, the the animation is also spectacular with a budget that allows the fight scenes to you know seem more epic and cinematic than what we get weekly. Uh, mm-hmm. We saw that in the first two Mahiro Academia movies. Uh, the action sequences are just far so far above and beyond what we see on a TV show. But despite the stakes, uh, this latest film suffers from the problem of all the other movies in that nothing happens here feels like it matters. Like, the movies are fun right until the end when, mm. the, when the easy resolution prevails. It always boils down to Deku powering up and punching the villain harder than he used to punch the villain. It's, uh, <laughs> you know... the. The intriguing complexity of the villain's motives are not explored at yeah. all. Um, and it feels like a waste of time because the films don't want to affect the status quo in the show. Um, I guess, nevertheless, it's solid enough in its watchability. It has crowd-pleasing action, good side gags, and, and you know has a nice insight into the core relationships. But for all the wealth of material, there's little substance here, which is why this is only a 6 out of 10. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose you will be watching World Heroes Mission soon anyway. Lah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, just a... to fill in the blanks, basically. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it you, is... don't, you don't need to, but it's okay. La. Yeah, I, I mean, like, eventually I'll get to it. I don't think, again, like, my main issue with a lot of the movies for for My Hero Academia is that it's usually of no consequence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it doesn't really affect, like, the mainline story with the exception of, uh, what was the other one that we reviewed recently? The one where they're older, right? Like that's the only one that like you kind of has any like significant impact on the yeah. story that we are following in in the main line. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I I do worry that like it oftentimes feels that we're going like one punch man direction. Like everything can be settled with a punch. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. Hopefully, you know that it, it doesn't devolve into that. The Not key difference I, is the yeah. key difference is One Punch Man is intentionally making fun of that trope, whereas My yeah. Hero Academia is unintentionally falling in that trope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but oh well. Um, <laughs> that's enough of My Hero Academia. I think that's the last we'll talk about My Hero Academia for this year at least. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to other anime with Isa's Anime Corner, where we'll be talking about returning anime, yep. new anime, and some other notable mentions. What yeah. stands out to you uh, in this season of anime, Isa? Um, there's a couple of things. I mean, again, right, spring has been the most amazing uh, anime season we've seen in recent history. Uh, summer was abysmal. I think with the exception of Sunny Boy, which did you end up finishing Sunny Boy? I did. I loved the finale. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of Sunny Boy last season and, and a couple of other things that we already covered in my last anime corner, um, yep. there wasn't really much in the summertime. I think Sunny Boy was a fascinating kind of like exploration of the strangeness that anime can can bring to the table yeah. when you get more experimental about that. Uh, and just like a in- fascinating study in like negative space, both in terms of the oral realm and the visual realm. Um, you know, uh, this season... 
we have I, I want to highlight a couple of like returning enemies that we've either covered before or you know haven't been around for a while um, yep. uh, um demon slayers back for those of you that don't know demon slayers back uh it is mm-hmm. it is uh screening on netflix as streaming on netflix as well week by week uh, yeah. because i mean obviously it's demon slayer right it's one of the big three at the moment mm-hmm. uh that's back uh as Hits has covered before already, like we are re-exploring the train arc, um, mm-hmm. which is great because we're getting a ton more stuff. It is everything that the movie should have been uh, mm-hmm. expanded and in the format that it should have been told in. Uh, so that has been really good so far. And I'm mm-hmm. just basically going to breeze through the rest as well. Sure. Uh, Mushoko Tensei, our Jobless Reincarnation, is back for its second season. Our very pervy... Our very pervy protagonist Rudius is back, uh, and uh, continues his adventuring with this mishmash of party members that we left off in the first season. Um, mm-hmm. The stakes continue to grow as the party just kind of like meanders their way back towards looking for their families. Um, it's more of the same, right? Still entirely enjoyable, but the world itself is fascinating, and there's a huge, growing mystery around uh, the things that happened in season one and how that's going to be resolved. Uh, we are not there yet. I think we're only halfway through the season so far. Mm. Uh, but still entirely enjoyable uh, if you can stomach the very strange, creepy, middle-aged man in the body of a child. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, next up, we're going to talk about 86. I covered 86 a while ago. Uh, quite uh, like two seasons ago. Um, yeah. Just a refresher. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Just a refresher for anybody who, you know, like 86 is... Um, it's it's a war anime essentially, right? Uh, there is an entire group of people known as the eighty six who are uh, disenfranchised. They don't own property. They have no rights. They are basically, um, you know, meat fodder for the front lines. Um, mm-hmm. And where a lot of people were saying that the original light novel that eighty six the anime was based on was extremely heavy handed in terms of its themes of like racism, privilege. Um, social disparity and and kind of like the the exploitation of like of, of human uh, other humans in order to kind of advance political goals. Uh, eighty six season one had an amazing nuance that wasn't present in the light novels itself. I think it definitely brought it to life. Eighty six yeah. part two resolves the main arc of season one and shows us uh, where our our uh, group of protagonists are at post war. And instead, looks at the unavoidable, inevitable effect that war has on its participants at every level in society, but mainly focusing on the 86. Uh, It is incredible. Like, the way in which they go about telling this story and resolving the kind of, like, um, personal conflicts as well as their own like processing their own trauma is some of the best stuff I've seen in a war story in anime like mm-hmm. ever honestly yeah. right it, and it is kind of mind-blowing so 86 continues to be extremely compelling and uh, it's not for everyone for sure like there's a lot of violence there's a lot of very difficult things to watch it's not an easy watch it is a war anime after all mm-hmm. uh, but just the way in which they treat kind of like the exploration of some of the themes that they are looking for is extremely nuanced and extremely well-written as you follow these characters trying to find um, life after war when their whole life has been war. 
yeah. So like it, this really really surprised me. I thought it was going to be more of the same. It went in a different direction, uh, but with the same kind of care um, that you don't often get from from an anime about like mechas and war. Uh, so 86 part 2 highly recommended if you love the first one if you haven't seen the first one go check it out because I still think that's one of the best kind of like mecha military anime that we've seen in a while awesome okay uh, I've talked about World Trigger not too long ago uh, third season is up continuing um, essentially this fascinating kind of sci-fi world that is very very slowly unfolding yeah. Um but again, all the things that I've loved about the original series and what we've expanded on in Season 2 is back. Um, the team is now closer to their goal of trying to res- uh, of, uh, get onto their rescue mission to another planet, which I'm very excited about because it's about damn time. It's mm-hmm. been like 50-something episodes to get to this point. Um, you know, but it's, it's, I'm still not tired of it, strangely enough. I think the pacing is a bit slow. Uh, is still good enough and compelling enough for me to continue watching it week to week. Uh, but for those of you that have picked up World Trigger, um, uh, based upon our recommendations or just something like that, it is back for season three. Uh, and I'm very interested to see, I have a feeling this season is going to end just before they leave so that they can secure season four. Uh, yeah. But so far, it's 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 been good. Uh, finally, I've spoken about Restaurant to Another World, which is now back for a second season. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Essentially, there you know, in certain places in in different worlds, whether it's modern Japan or uh, in like these fantasy worlds, there are these doors, magical doors that lead you to a very specific like kind of izakaya that's helmed by a magical cook slash boss. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is your fix of animated food porn. Right. Uh, we don't have uh, shok- um, shokugeki anymore for the time being. Um, it's a very light-hearted kind of lovely, interesting format in which um, you know, there's always a new dish that they're going to introduce. Uh, with new characters who are kind of like um, these individual stories of people coming to an izakaya for food, for companionship, for storytelling, and and just kind of sharing within the social space of of a meal, right? Uh, I entirely enjoyed uh, season one. Season two doesn't actually bring anything different from that. Uh, but like, please do not watch this on an empty stomach. You will not make it through. Uh, mm-hmm. Trust me on this. Um, yeah, the characters are cute. Um, and it's as simple as that. Uh, it's a bunch of interesting, cute stories of people from various worlds uh, of fantasy and sci-fi and and all kinds of walks of life who meet in a magical izakaya to eat what looks like ridiculously delicious food. Uh, So that's back for season two. Moving on to new anime this season that are noteworthy and outstanding. I'm first going to talk about the two that have broken out of... uh, broken out of delayed broadcast on Netflix, which is usually a case that Netflix really believes in what's going on. First one I'm going to talk about is Blue Period, which was something I highlighted to hit there fairly on. Um, essentially, Blue Period, uh, we follow Yatora Yaguchi, who is like a delinquent. He's kind of obsessed with like the idea of popularity, uh, but he has excellent grades, right? Um, but he's, a, he's just a little bit lost. Um, his interactions with some... Uh, with the childhood friend and uh, eventually the art club sparks a desire in him to pursue art. 
um, as as kind of like uh, a, a way to find something more fulfilling uh, in his life. Uh, it is one of those animes that is beautifully animated. It is very detailed in terms of like explaining and teaching what the different artis- uh, artistic practices are. Uh, entirely educational in a way that I did not expect it to be. Uh, mm-hmm. All while being a very kind of like inspiring and emotionally compelling slice of life. Um, as a teenager who is finding his identity through learning art. Right. Um, I really, really enjoyed this. Nice. Uh, of, of course, uh, Blue Period is a, a reference to Eve's Klein, um, his own Blue Period, right? Where basically he was only using blue for all of his artworks. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so like if kind of like visual, uh, traditional visual art is anything that you're sort of interested in, I would say that this is for you. If you've always wondered what it's like to be an art student, this is for you. Um, the the interactions between the characters are, are, are cute and um, they are, it could be more nuanced, I think, but a lot of the time, I think I tend to forget that these are high school students and that like high school drama is a very real and important thing to high schoolers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of that, like I'm really, really enjoying this. It gives me um your lie in april vibes uh just in terms of like the way in which you follow along a journey of self-discovery with with a young man in an artistic medium wow okay yeah so blue period uh highly recommend next up the only other anime that has broken out of delayed broadcast is komi can't communicate uh, which is an anime about a girl with severe social anxiety who is stuck in a school with the zaniest of characters. Uh, Come Communicate comes for you courtesy of OLM. If you don't know, we've been talking about OLM a lot recently because they made Odd Taxi. They are also the guys who made the po- new Pokemon series. And if you haven't seen what the new Pokemon series look like, you are missing out because it is nothing like what you remember it to be. Uh... But yeah, essentially we follow uh, uh, Hitohito Tarano, who's just an ordinary boy who claims like his superpower is kind of reading the room, which is not true because he doesn't know how to read the room, uh, who accidentally, I guess, manages to befriend the belle of the school, who is this amazingly beautiful, extremely talented um, idol within the school who has severe social anxiety and basically can't communicate with anybody um, he eventually vows to help her find a hundred friends and that's what the entire kind of series is about um, there's some very real things about that as someone who has one struggle from social anxiety I can tell you uh, it never makes fun of the condition although a lot of the situations that the characters find themselves in are hilarious um, you know but it brings up some very um, kind of real things and plays it to a satisfactory kind of like emotional resolution whenever there is progress in her in her ability to kind of like socialize and make friends for that um it's it's really funny i'm really really enjoying this it's just one of those things that i i love the fact that you can take you know a subject matter like um severe anxiety and social anxiety and treat it in a way that is light-hearted without making it a joke uh, nice. and it has been a super interesting watch just because of that like I think a lot of thought has to be to be put into 
being having a balanced view, right, of of what <laughs> a struggle like that is like. So Komi Can Communicate on Netflix. Uh that is another one of my recommendations for that. <clears throat> awesome. Uh as always, this season we've gotten its fair share of isekai, of which the one that stands out the most at the moment is one that's called Far Away Paladin. Mm-hmm. Same kind of deal. Uh, Hikikomori ends up being reincarnated in another world, but this world is really fascinating. He essentially gets found as a baby who is raised by three different types of undead, uh, like a skeleton man, a, a zombie, and a ghost. Uh, and the grand mystery is as to why these people are undead. Uh, it has been a very interesting kind of world-building uh, journey, I, I think, just as he goes about with uh, the skills that he's being taught by these supernatural kind of uh, immortal creatures and his own kind of journey eventually becoming uh, the champion of the deity that brought him into this world uh, mm-hmm. and his quest to find out why it is that his, his very strange family uh, are the way they are. And it's, it's been really quite fun okay. uh, for that so far. Uh, so that's my isekai pick of this this season. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go into my top three picks, right? Nice. Uh, first up, Tak Op Destiny. Okay. When I first heard that this was coming out, I was just like, okay, right? Bandai Namco Arts wanted to do a mixed media project centered on classical music, and they were going to release an RPG game for smartphones. Uh, developed by the game studio. And I thought to myself, wow. okay, this is going to be pretty shit, right? Yeah. I mean, like, most of the time, any sort of game tie-ins are pretty shit. And then I found out that the people who are in charge of the anime are Madhouse and Mappa, which is the most incredible collaboration that anime has seen thus far, just by pure names of it, right? We've talked about Madhouse yeah. anime all the time. We've talked about Mappa anime all the time. So I had very mixed feelings going into this. Uh, but let me just give you kind of like some of the premise, right? Okay. So the, the US has been in chaos ever since the emergence of, what are they called? Like D2s, right? This uh, invading species that have um, I- I invaded uh, from a black meteorite that fell to Earth. Um, there is a public banning of all types of melody or music to prevent casualties because D2s hate music. Uh, oh. And in the year like 2047, right, this ban is still in effect. Um, okay. The only form of defense against this invading force are the mu- music arts, so who are these young women who represent uh, pieces of classical music, right? And the conductors who are essentially their handlers. Uh, we follow Tact, the titular character Tact, who is a, a piano prodigy uh, finds himself transformed into a conductor, f- following being caught up with a with a, an attack by the D two, um, mm-hmm. and eventually comes into contact with his music art, who is called Destiny, uh, and they are searching for a means to stabilize the pack within themselves because they're not really sure what that's about, and therefore embark on a perilous journey with a normal human being called Anna. Uh, towards the Symphonica headquarters in New York City. Uh, mm. This anime is fascinating not only because of the uh, the phenomenal visual spectacle that is Madhouse X Mappa, 
but also the fact that this anime outside of the fight scenes has no music. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, and the music pieces are phenomenal. Like, every fight scene feels so much more heightened because it has music in it. Uh, and it is, it is, it's kind of mind-blowing how mm, conflicted I felt about this. There are so many signs that this would be bad, uh, but I'm actually really enjoying it. Uh, is the premise original? Not necessarily. Uh, is the storyline a bit contrived? Yes, sure. Uh, but man, watch it just for like the artwork and the music. That That's kind of it, right? There are scenes here where I've seen, I've checked out a couple of YouTube videos where you have these like classical uh, musicians and instrumentalists who are just commenting about the amount of detail and nuance that they've put into animating any sort of like piano playing or violin playing within mm -hmm. the anime itself. And they're like, it's spot on, right? Like there hasn't been something this detailed since your lie in April. And, um, you know, they're super hyped about it. Uh, nice. So Tag OP Destiny, kind of like out of left field because again, game tie-ins almost never do well. Uh, mm -hmm. It is receiving a lot of mixed reviews. Largely people are loving the collaboration for sure, some of them are just like, this is another cash grab. Just because you're involving two major enemy studios doesn't make a difference for that. Sure, by all means, right? But I'm entirely enjoying this just because I think like having the lack of music being a center point and the idea of music as rebellion from an oppressive force is just a story that I can get with. Okay. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, one of my top three. Next up, nice. I'm going to talk about the most technically accomplished anime I've seen in a while. And that is Heike Monotagari. Right? Okay. Uh, so, the tale of Heike is like, uh, is, an, is a traditional Japanese epic, right? Uh, um, that talks about the Taira clan and the Minamoto clan uh, who are struggling for control in Japan uh, at the end of the 12th century in the Genpei War. Um, the whole of Heike Monotagari looks like a Japanese painting. Uh, wow. It is insanely beautiful and it looks insanely difficult to pull off. Uh, it is one of the visually most visually unique anime to come out in a long while. Uh, mm -hmm. On top of that, their twist to the, the Heike tale, uh, whereby we follow a young girl who is give, gifted with, with an odd um, ability to see the future, uh, and and uh, at the cost of her father's life, uh, and gets embroiled in the political and military mess that is the Genpei War. Uh, it's just a very kind of fresh take on it, right? There are a, a number of other enemies that have covered this exact same story, but the art style combined with the very unique perspective on it, combined with the fact that it has an amazing soundtrack composed purely of traditional Japanese instruments, makes this like a technical marvel to watch. Uh, nice. It is, yeah, it is, it, this is a literal moving piece of art. Um, and I don't say that often as much as I love anime. Mm -hmm. That being said, it is a, it, it covers well-trodden ground with a new perspective. I'm really, really enjoying this. It's very difficult not to just kind of get lost in the visual and oral aspect uh, of this story. Um, the characters are well fleshed out. Voice acting is fantastic. Um, I'm really, really enjoying this. This is my second top pick of this season. 
brought to you by Science Saru, who we've talked about. Uh, they worked on one episode in um, in Star Wars Visions. Uh, most mm-hmm. famously, they've done Devilman Crybaby as well. Um, and like, I think this is probably the most ambitious project that they've worked on so far. Uh, just in terms of like pushing the boundaries with what anime can possibly look like. And mm-hmm. I highly recommend if you want like something very, very different uh, from your usual isekai shonen stuff. Okay, nice. My top pick, and the pick that I, I don't think I would have imagined uh, ever picking, uh, is called Osama Ranking, also known as Ranking of Kings. Right, okay. brought to you by Wit Studio, who, of course, as most of you know, have brought us uh, Attack on Titan, Owari uh, No Seraph, uh, Vinland Saga, and a lot of like these extremely popular kind of like action shonen style anime. Mm-hmm. Um, Osama Ranking is a passion project, right? It's an entirely um, origin. Uh, it was it's adapted from a web manga. Its animation looks really old, like a throwback to the 90s, kind of like your Doraemon style, maybe even uh, maybe even like indicative of like early Disney type animation, right? Okay. A lot of it's very flat. It looks like it's made for children. Um, it's very cutesy. Um, but this is, at the moment, the top ranked anime on my anime list and my top pick of the season. Wow. Uh, Basically, uh, we follow Prince Boji, who is both deaf and mute. They call him the useless prince. And he lives in a world whereby um, there exists this thing called the ranking of kings, right? Where every king who comes into power is ranked according to how strong they are on a martial kind of level, like a martial or military level. Um, Mm -hmm. He is small and he is weak and he can neither uh, hear nor speak. Uh, but while Boji kind of struggles with all of that, he's not weak of heart. Uh, this feels very much like your typical tale of like heart triumph, uh, triumphing over everything. Um, but it is incredibly heartwarming and moving to see him one step at a time try and overcome all the all the things that you know um, that he's been he's been burdened down with. Um, and and all the and proving basically proving all the naysayers wrong, right? Yep. Um, the world building is kind of fascinating. The the premise is kind of fascinating. It's a super interesting world, um, and um, the characters, although in the beginning few kind of cliched, like get fleshed out very quickly, very fast in very deep and unexpected ways. Um, yeah, there there are there are no kind of like long, hand-waving, expository lines, you know, where they kind of like give you the entire backstory so you can get into the action of the thing. Uh, Osama Ranking takes its time with uh, with the hero's journey, quite literally, uh, mm-hmm. here. And it has been uh, an illuminating watch, if nothing else. Uh, okay. It does not have the technical prowess of... Heike Monogari, it does not have the visual pizzazz of a madhouse Mapa Takopi Destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, I'm really enjoying this story. Uh, awesome. That I feel so invested in this one character more so than I have of any other character this season. Um, and yeah, it, it's 
some people are not going to like the animation, but I really, much like Odd Taxi, I would suggest that you give this a try. You never know um, what it will speak to you. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, how would you rank it next to to your eternity or a taxi? Um, I mean, if we're talking about okay, so Tag OP Destiny is basically this season's VV, right? Like okay. it, both in terms of the music, in terms of the visual spectacle, and in terms of like its weaknesses. Uh, I would think that this ranks probably third behind Odd Taxi and To Your Eternity. In terms oh, of okay, like okay. how much I am enjoying this, I don't think it is like brilliantly art house or anything of the sort. Um, okay. like like Odd Taxi is or isn't like this grand kind of like grand scale across the century story that that To Your Eternity is. This is just a very simply well told story that's like written with um the inner world and emotional struggle of someone who can't communicate in mind um yep. to the best degree that I've seen in a long time. Okay, yeah so okay. yeah ranking of kings like uh, totally unexpected for that. Um nice. yeah so those are my top three picks for this particular season. Um I'm gonna l- just quickly list a couple of other animes that are of note. Uh, notable mentions essentially things that you don't really have to think about is nothing deep things that I've kind of enjoyed uh, first up is Miraku-chan which is based upon an insanely popular uh, comedy supernatural horror manga uh, of a girl who basically can who can see spirits uh, but is trying to go about her very normal kind of high school life um, I don't think that the anime is as good as the manga. I think like, a lot of the horror elements have been played down, unfortunately. And uh, you are now also served with an insane dose of fan service. Like, this anime is so horny. It is mm-hmm. kind of... It's not necessarily off-putting, but the gap between like those scenes and then immediately going into like this horrifying kind of like specter that's like, trailing this girl around is quite strange. Uh, but mm-hmm. still, like, still incredibly popular. Uh, still ranks fairly high. I think a lot of the goodwill from the manga has carried over to that. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, by all means, an, an enjoyable watch. I do like when the tone shifts more into the horror stuff, um, which was what I was hoping more of. Um, but yeah, just something for those of you that, that have a little horror that you need to nick. Um, okay. Irina, the vampire cosmonaut, is... Interesting. Basically, it's like what if vampires existed in uh, during the time when the space race was happening, essentially, right? And yep. uh, they're discriminated against. They are vastly misunderstood as a species. Uh, and basically, they're sending Irina, who is a vampire, out into space after they send Laika, the dog, right? If that says anything about the kind of struggles the vampires are facing within uh, mm-hmm. the Russian Federation at this point in time. Um, I, I think it's just a fairly interesting kind of premise. Um, you know, the whole idea of the other and exploring that um, within this sort of like uh, historical fiction where vampires and maybe, question mark, question mark, uh, other sort of supernatural creatures exist. Um, Mm. I will say though, this anime has a strange oral fixation. There's a lot of close-up shots of like lip smacking, lip licking, Mm. um, consumption of like food. Um, a lot of that repeatedly so and not that it's not well done it's just that there's a tad much of it uh, which I a find lot. kind of interesting yeah the oral fixation yeah. is kind of 
it's interesting within the context of the story because she is a vampire, you know, but they do lean into it a bit much. Um, okay. But it's an interesting context. I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it as something that I don't really need to think too deeply about as well. Uh, my workplace comedy pick of this season is called My Senpai is Annoying. Uh, mm-hmm. We follow a very petite, chibi um, saleswoman, Futaba Igarashi, uh, who has held on to her sales job for almost two years thanks to the guidance of her senior co-worker. Um, who is basically a giant, right? Like, he's huge and she's small. This is a really fun, funny workplace comedy with some romance dashed into it that has a lot of great laugh-out-loud jokes. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's been really fun. Uh, some of the jokes are a bit more risque than I would necessarily be comfortable um, repeating here. But, like, okay. a ton of laugh-out-loud moments. Like, it's been a while since, like, a good workplace comedy anime that's this funny has been out. So, I've been enjoying that. Nice. Okay. Uh, okay, just three more left. Uh, two of which we dive back into the ridiculously long title of The World's Finest Assassin Gets Reincarnated, in, in, reincarnated into Another World as an Aristocrat. Isekai, okay. um, he's overpowered, but not as overpowered as the guy that he's trying to assassinate. Um, mm-hmm. It has some very interesting kind of spycraft and assassin... Uh, craft going on that they kind of explain on within a world that has magic some political yeah. intrigue uh, overall a fun watch um, and you know some moral uh, grey areas here and there for you to kind of think about okay um, the other one is banished from the heroes party I decided to live a quiet life in the countryside uh, this one not isekai fantasy world basically a slice of life of a retired hero uh, mm-hmm. very fun very wholesome uh, interesting way of kind of like interplaying with his past as uh, his sister is the hero he's been supporting her he got kicked out of the party because he's too weak and there's a cap in this world to how strong you can actually get um, okay. so he opens up an apothecary. Uh, eventually one of the former adventurers who used to ad- who, who he's crossed paths with who is interested in him finds him decides to retire from adventuring and the two of them run an apothecary in a town uh, like a small kind of boondocks right uh, it's, it's very cute it's very fun um, the the romance is kind of sweet okay. as these two are totally like not cut out for romance whatsoever okay. uh, so that has been really good uh, last one I'm going to talk about is Sakugan uh, which is brought to you uh, by Satellite who are the people who most famously have worked on Lock Horizon but also on a couple of episodes of Helsing Ultimate um, yeah. yeah this is you know um this is your kind of like typical future dystopia. Uh, humanity has retreated underground uh, into this space kind of called the labyrinth, which is where different humans, uh, different human clusters live known as colonies. Um, mm-hmm. And the above ground slash the middle ground is now occupied by kaiju, uh, which range from like these tiny human-like mon- uh, monsters to like massive kind of beasts. This is your kaiju, my kaiju mecha pick of this season. We follow a nine-year-old college graduate who, um, who's basically an inventor um, that has, you know, worked very hard to kind of benefit the workers in her kind of local company. But her grand desire is um, to go out on a never-ending adventure uh, in the upper world with the robot that she designed, much to the charging of her very protective single father. Um, okay. This is a very, I mean, 
great kind of like action scenes. I think the monster designs and the robot designs are pretty cool. The main kind of draw here is the father-daughter relationship between an absolutely brilliant child and her father who's just trying his best, but like, you know, is really struggling. Um, that side of it is cute. The adventure kind of hook is cute as well. Um, yeah, and uh, visually, it's it's okay. Like, it's not great or anything of the sort, but I am enjoying, like, the little bit of father-daughter um, story that's going on here. So nice. that wraps up my anime corner. Um, please feel free to go check those out. I do think that all the returning anime this season has a lot of good stuff. Um, mm-hmm that you can go back and watch the first season and kind of dive back into. Uh, my top three picks, again, are Tak OP Destiny, uh, this version, uh, this season's version of Vivi, Heike Gari. you have to watch just because it is a visual marvel, and mm. Osama Ranking, which might be one of the best stories that we've had this year. Um, nice. In general, yeah. Oh, awesome, and that wraps it up for ISIS Enemy Corner for this month. A wealth of options for you to delve into. Oh, Obviously, yeah. the top... Obviously, the top three that he uh, specifically spotlighted uh, should be uh, your priority and mine. And I'm definitely <laughs> going to uh, delve into uh, Osama ranking for sure, yeah. since that's his topic. Um, to wrap this episode up of genre equality, I'm going to be talking about the pull list, which is where I recommend uh, one or two reading recommendations to mm-hmm. you guys. Uh, first up, I'm going to be talking about a psalm for the wild built. Uh-huh. Uh, it is okay. Before I get into this book, uh, let me talk about its wonderful author, Becky Chambers, mm-hmm. who is right now my favorite sci-fi author. Um, and here's the reason: I, I read a lot of sci-fi, and it's a genre that's become um, overpopulated with cynicism and grimness and mm-hmm. violence, mm-hmm. and whether it's you know alien invasions or technology gone wrong or the ravages of climate change. I mean, the tone is depressing despite most of the stories presenting quite valid allegories and cautionary tales. But increasingly, the quote-unquote hope-punk genre seems to be slowly counteracting this. Mm. It's a sub-genre built upon kindness and decency and integrity. It's a hopeful view of what people can be. Uh, think sci-fi Paddington, sci-fi Ted Lasso, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, okay. Uh, it inspires goodness rather than caution against badness. And at the forefront of this subgenre, like the leader of it is Becky Chambers. And as I've reviewed in previous episodes, like the Wayfarer series, her Wayfarer series is the best example of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, her latest is a novella called The Sum for the Wild Built. It takes place in a new continuity outside of the Wayfarer's universe, mm-hmm. but shares much of his DNA. Essentially, the story is a monk and a robot meet in a forest. They become... <laughs> They become friends, yeah. uh, and they spend lots of time talking about stuff. Uh, what follows is a quiet, gentle book made up of episodic conversations between the monk and the robot as they travel through the wilderness and discuss the differences between robot and human societies. They debate about history and ecology and philosophy and desire and purpose. Uh, not only are the conversations great, uh, at you know they're they're great in philosophy and they're also great at sneaky world building because you know all of the stuff that you need to know about the world is implied in their conversations. Mm-hmm. They are intensely character driven, addressing the insecurities and troubles of each character in very eloquent ways. And uh, as they go along, they not only understand each other but pick up on new perspectives. Uh, and their friendship becomes a source of strength and comfort. It's a cozy, mm-hmm. wholesome 
beautiful book that will leave you with you know warm fuzzy feelings inside so Ooh. yeah if you like if you like Count Paddington if you like that lasso check out Becky Chambers' work including her latest novella A Sun for the Wild Built uh, finally I want to talk about Day Tripper which is um, let me say you know some stuff I reviewed long overdue you know yeah. a few months later a few weeks later yeah Day Tripper came out in 2011, so this is oh, wow. 10 years overdue. later? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Mean. Like, I can't believe it took me this long to read Fabio Moon and Gabriel Bas' graphic novel Day Tripper uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and this is one of the most poignant and quietly profound things I've ever read. Uh, I admit I'm late, but, you know, better late than never. Oh, yeah. Uh, the story of Day Tripper follows uh, the life of a Bra- Brazilian man named Bras who works as an obituary editor at a local newspaper. Okay. So he spends most of his time writing about the lives of people uh, who have recently passed away while trying to make a name of himself as a novelist. So on the side, he's trying to write his own novel. Um, in each chapter, Brass takes us through a different segment of his life, mm-hmm. whether it be his childhood, playing with his cousins on a farm, or the time he met his future wife. Uh, so each chapter, whether it's him as a kid, him as a young adult, him as a middle-aged man or an old man or every age in between offers you a glimpse into a pivotal moment of his life. Mm. The thing is, at the end of every chapter, he dies. So you, you follow his story as a middle-aged man in the first chapter. Yep. At the end of it, he dies. Mm-hmm. You know, and then at the second chapter, as a kid, he dies at the end of it. So we see how his life would be different if he had been cut short or mm. gone on a little longer. Mm-hmm. So slowly we piece together what defines Brass as a person through his experiences as a writer, a friend, a boyfriend, a husband, a son, and a father. So depending on where or when he is in his life, his yeah. outlook of his fortunes and misfortunes are entirely different. Mm. Uh, part of it is down to maturity, part of it is down to lack of maturity, mm-hmm. and part of it is down to the status of his relationships with the people around him at the time. Mm. So keep in mind, you know, at different points of his life, the status of relationships obviously change. Um, as we learn more about him, new revelations of past or future events ask the reader to continually reevaluate moments that we've previously read. While the story itself builds upon its examinations of friendly and uh, family and friendship yeah. and love and life, um, and from the first, and from the moment the first issue opens with Brass's work writing obituaries, you kind of know that it's an examination of the inevitability of death mm-hmm. and the preparation of death and how no amount of preparation is enough for those left behind. Uh, this was such a raw and human story about an ordinary person's hopes and fears and despite it being about death, it's ultimately a celebration of life and a hopeful meditation on the possibility uh, of life and of human nature. Mm. Uh, yeah, this is one of the best comic books I've read uh, in, in, in recent memory, and I don't know why it took me 10 years to, <laughs> to catch up on it, but I, I borrowed it on a whim on the li- in, in the library, and hey, um, really, really enjoyed it, so I urge you to pick it up as well. It's available in the, in the National Library. Uh, or if you don't own it, go to Kino, go to uh, Book Depository, or go to Amazon, wherever you buy your comics, it's probably going to be there still. Mm. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about our favorite, well, our best, uh, <laughs> best new TV shows of the year. Yeah. So best new shows, you know, season ones, uh, we'll be talking about the best new shows of the year in the next Behold, as well as the best films from the second half of 2021. Because if you remember, uh, we already did our list for the best films for the first half of yep. 2021. So we'll be rounding it up with the with the best of the second half. Plus, John Equality uh, rounds up the year 2021 with probably the biggest episode that we'll ever do. Uh, <laughs> we have Spider-Man No Way Homecoming. Yep. Uh, we have uh, Hawkeye coming. We got uh, The Matrix Resurrections. 
Uh, we'll be reviewing the Wheel of Time. Agretico will be back. I shall be covering The Witcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and lots and lots of good stuff there. Like. So it's going to be a jam-packed final episode for the year, which we'll be listening, which I mean, I guess we'll be recording before the MDA, like, but you yep. will get it on the, on the 1st of 2022. Um, of all those things, obviously, Spider-Man No Way Home is number one on the list, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, what else are you looking to, to talk about? Um, Either on genre or on Behold? Ooh, okay. Uh... Let's see, let's see. Okay, I'm looking forward to watching Hacks and Ghost Five Ever, for sure. Mm-hmm. Those two are definitely... I'm very curious to see where they take Witcher Season 2. I'm very interested to see uh, Wheel of Time, for sure. Uh, I, I think like those are kind of like the upcoming things that I'm most excited about at the moment. Okay, I'm, I'm assigning you Wheel of Time, okay. because I watched the first couple of episodes. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> okay, okay, um, cool. I'm leaving that to you. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will trudge through as much of it as I can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> try, at, at least try to watch the first three, like, and then give your review on that, like, Because yeah. I, I, I lost hope already. I gave up. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. does not bode well. Never mind. I'll give it three episodes, and then we can we can shit on it if we need to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm conflicted about Matrix. I'm really conflicted about Matrix. I don't know. I, I've loved the Matrix for like as as a child. Mm-hmm. I don't know where this is going. I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. I'm not sure if... Mm. Yeah, we will see how that goes. That's the one I'm most apprehensive about, I think. Sweet, okay. Uh, yeah, so you'll get our year-end list coming soon on the next two episodes of Behold, mm-hmm. as well as the wrap-up of all the big blockbusters coming out in December very soon. Uh, till next time, though, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.